Okay, so this is a show I did with Dennis Kang where we kind of talked about his uh, fighting career, you know, which started in 1998. He fought all over. You know, he fought in the UFC, Pride, Super Brawl, Extreme Challenge, Pancrase, Spirit MC. And uh, we talked about some of the experiences he took away from uh, mixed martial arts, training at American Top Team as it was building, his memories of training and living with George St. Pierre, you know, and more. So interesting insight into a veteran fighter who's trained with a lot of great people as well and uh, just learn more about, uh, you know, his experience and also the experience of guys like George St. Pierre who, you know, some of the greatest fighters of all time. So this is a... Dennis Kang from Canada. Check it out. Okay, so this is uh, Todd Atkins, and I'm here with Dennis Kang. And, uh, you know, Dennis, I want to take it, thank you for taking time to do this. And maybe for if there's anyone out here listening to this who isn't familiar with you, maybe you could kind of introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, my name is uh, Dennis Kang. Uh, I used to compete professionally in MMA. I fought uh, for a long time in Japan and Korea, most notably in Pride, uh, Pride Bushido, K1 Heroes, Spirit MC, uh, Dream, and then later on in the UFC. And uh, I had my last fight in 2012, and I'm now, I still train, but I'm uh, more of a coach. I don't compete anymore. So, yeah. Now, you know, when were you first introduced to like the idea of fighting? Was that something that you were looking at or somebody approached you about doing it? It's, uh, I mean, I've always been an athlete. I've always liked martial arts, you know. So when I first saw the, you know, the first UFC cassettes, you know, in the late 90s, I was in high school still. And it's, it's something that I just fell in love with. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I thought it was like Mortal Kombat or Bloodsport or something, you know, right away, like the Kumite and you know, it's uh, right away, I just loved it. I didn't want to do it right away because, you know, I was young. I was only like 16, 17, and all the, all the fighters in the UFC were grown men, like in their late 20s or 30s or 40s. They were martial arts masters, basically, or competitors. So I didn't want to do it, but I loved uh, learning about it and watching it, right? So I started to train a little bit more in traditional martial arts and then a little bit more in BJJ later on and when I became more serious. You know, I was also getting, you know, like in my early 20s and more confident with it. And a lot of my friends were telling me, oh, you should do it. You should do it, you know, and that's it. <laughs> so the first fight, like the first promotion you fought in, like I said, were you approached by them or did you kind of try to make that happen yourself? Oh, no, I was trying to make it happen myself. I wanted to compete as soon as the like the competition. I got to say almost from, from the, like before I even started, I kind of knew I wanted to do it in my, my subconscious, I guess I can say, but it wasn't until my friends kind of reaffirmed that, you know, that I could do it, that I really wanted to. Right. So, uh, and then for the first fight to get back to your question, it was a combination of myself telling my coach Marcus Suarez that uh, I wanted to fight. And I think he was contacted by the promoter. And uh, it was an underground fight, actually. It was in 1998, so it was NHB. Uh, the word, word MMA didn't even exist. And so it was uh, an, an event in like a warehouse. There was no gloves, obviously. And uh, it was an event in a warehouse. And to get to the event, you had to call a pager number the day of. And they would call you back and ask you if you were a cop. You said, no, you got the address. You got to go and watch the event. <laughs> And so how did that turn out? Were there a lot of people there or was it? There was, there was, there was about 500 people, right? Uh, it was uh, like a dingy little warehouse. The, the warm-up room was one closet with a curtain in the middle. You had one corner on one side, the other corner on the other. Uh, before my fight, I saw guys that had lost and they were puking in the corner. There was just, it was very intense. I was finding a guy who was trained by Maurice Smith, who was, a very big deal at the time. So I was a little intimidated by, by, uh, you know, by my opponent's coach and I, uh, hair pulling was allowed. So, and I had not long hair, but like, you know, normal kind of hair. I didn't have a shaved head basically. And my friend told me, Oh, you, you know, you got hair. He's going to be grabbing your head. He's going to be hockey fighting you only holding your head instead of your collar, holding your hair. So 
we put Vaseline in my hair to uh, to kind of make it slippery. So if someone did grab my hair, I would be able to, you know, yank my head out. And so I'm in the ring. I'm about to fight. Uh, you know, the referee goes, are you ready? Are you ready? And I go like this, just kind of, you know, as a reflex to kind of brush my hair back. And I get Vaseline all in my hands. I tried to wipe it. The fight's about and I didn't even get to worry about it. The fight started, but just kind of put into perspective the, you know, the panic and the anxiety that was there. Every little scene, every little thing seemed to be going wrong just before, you know, it was, uh, it was pretty nerve wracking. So after the first one, what were your thoughts coming away is because you were saying you wanted to compete. So what did you take away from the first fight? I loved it. I mean, I won in 15 seconds. Uh, one thing I remembered is how, uh, how nervous I was, you know, I mean, uh, I kept thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? This is crazy. I, I hope it gets canceled. If, uh, if the event gets canceled, I'll be happy. I won't have to do it, you know, and, but I still did it. So, you know, I, you know, I knew that it was something that, that was, uh, you know, that was stressful, but it, the thought of never doing it again, never occurred to me. You know, the only time that I really thought about quitting the sport was when I lost a couple of fights, you know, uh, later on in my career where I had some tough losses, you know, when, when you lose you in reflection, sometimes you think about hanging it up. So I went through that, but never because of, of the nerves or, or the fear, you know? So I knew that it's something I loved and I made a little money doing it. You know, nowadays people don't make money on their first fights because they got to fight amateur, you know, but back then you just fought pro right away. Uh, made 500 bucks. I think it was, I was happy 15 seconds, you know, I was 20, working in a call center. <laughs> so that was good for me. Right. Right. So, you know, as you're going on, did you still have some of those same fears before fights that you had then? Oh, every time, every time you have those fears. Uh, in fact, you probably have more fears as you progress and you make it to bigger fights because the stakes are that much higher. What does change, however, is the way that you deal with those fears, you know? So, and I get that question a lot, by the way, you know, um, and it's always my same answer. The fear is always there. You just get used to the fear. You know, it's like, and I always use the dentist analogy. It's like when you're a kid and your parents take you to the dentist, you don't like it. You hate it, you know? Um, but they're like, Hey, you gotta go. Your, your parents are taking you. You can't, you know, you got no choice. You just kind of sit along for the ride and accept it. And it's the same thing with fighting. You're nervous. It's very stressful. You think about it all the time, butterflies in the stomach, but you signed on for the fight, just accept it and go ahead, you know? <laughs> so as you were getting more serious, where did, when did you feel like, okay, this might be something that I'm going to try to do maybe as a career, so to speak? I mean, no, back then it was harder to do that, but. Right. Um, there wasn't, a, I don't think there was a, a moment exactly like that. You know, it's kind of something that I, I always loved it and I always knew that I wanted to do it. Um, I was just kind of living in the moment and just seeing what would happen. You know, um, I can tell you that if you look at my record, uh, especially, you know, the first half, you'll see that, you know, it wasn't, uh, I won a couple fights right off the bat and then I lost a few. And then at one point I even had more losses than wins. So, you know, there, um, there, there was some periods where, I just had to think like, do I really want to do this or, you know, um, but it was more like uh, I got to keep doing it, even if I keep losing. And because it's the only, ch I'm, you know, I'm only going to be young once, you know, so I really wanted to give it my all for as long as I could and then maybe retire down the line. You know, I wanted, I didn't want to stop it just because I'd lost and uh, you know, and uh, I could still keep going. You know, I wanted to keep, to keep doing it and you know what when i really started to, to stop focusing on trying to win is when I, I turned things around and start to i did start to win a lot more and when was that when did you feel like you kind of started to turn a corner that was um probably around 2003 right it's when i fought a lot uh and no you know what it was after i fought uh, jason miller uh Jason Mayhem Miller, I fought him in Salt Lake City, Utah on Extreme Challenge. I think it was like my second loss in a row. I was pretty bummed out. Um, and I told myself, man, you know what? I keep losing. Maybe I'm not so good at this. Maybe I'm going to stop. I'm going to hang it up. I'm going to 
concentrate on jujitsu or maybe get a real job. I don't know. Uh, but I had already signed for a fight uh, one or two months away, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this last one and then I'll quit. I'll never do, I'll never compete again. And I took this fight. I still trained for it. And because in my mind, I was already expecting to lose and I thought that I was going to quit, uh, quit the sport right after, I ended up winning. I had way less stress, right? And then after that, I think I took a short notice fight with, uh, you know, Miguel Irurate? Yeah, he, he took me, he gave me a short notice fight against Keith Raquel in Boston. And I won that by knockout. And then after that, I just kept winning. I fought in Super Brawl. I fought in Russia. I fought in, in uh, Montreal, Quebec. Like, it was insane. I fought, I think I, I went 6-1 uh, and one that year, which was pretty good, right? And that one loss was the first fight of the year. I won six in a row right after. So, that was good. Yeah, so, you know, I was in Hawaii for a long time. Like, what were some of your memories of fighting in Super Brawl? I think you won two fights that night. Yeah. Oh, man, it was so cool. I went down with, uh, with my brother, my brother Tommy. We went down. It was just really cool to visit Hawaii as soon as we got out of the hotel. Like, we landed at the airport, went to the hotel. We just went right in the water. It was so nice. Coming from Vancouver was, uh, you know, it was very different. And then uh, it was just cool to be part of, like, such a, such a big event. You know, there was a lot of up-and-comers in that event. There was Joe Dirksen. Uh, there was, uh, who else was in there? Justin Eilers was on the event. Uh, yeah, it, it was uh, Cabbage. Wesley Cabbage Carrera was on the event, I believe. Uh, it was cool. Matt Hughes was the referee. Two fights in one night it was hard, man. The first fight, I, uh, I, uh, I won the fight by armbar. And in the second fight, I fought this guy named Kaipo Kalama. And uh, I won a unanimous decision over him. But it was a tough fight, man. It was just, uh, you know, just rough back and forth. And then it, uh, there was supposed to be a third fight. But I think I hurt my knee uh, in that fight. And I couldn't keep going. But yeah, it was tough, man. Nowadays, the young fighters don't even know what it was like back then to fight in tournaments. You know, like two fights, three fights in one night I've done. It's hard. You get your adrenaline up. You win your fight. You go backstage. You got to calm down a little bit. Then you got to go back out there again, you know? Injury or no injury. So it's tough. <laughs> so let's kind of talk about fighting in Japan because I know you fought in Pancrase. You also fought in Pride. So Pancrase, were you fighting at a Krakow Hall or? Pancreas, there was one. The first time was at Yokohama. It was uh, in Yokohama at a place called uh, Yokohama Town Hall or something like that. Something like that. I don't know if I fought at Korokuen Hall. I always saw the name. I think I may have once. I think my second fight may have been at Korokuen Hall. And then, um, oh no, the second one was at the, the Budokan Hall, actually. The third one may have been at Korokuen Hall. I think it was, yeah. Yeah. But so yeah. maybe for people who've never been there, I always kind of, you know, that place is like a really special place in fighting, even though it's a real kind of a small venue. Maybe tell some people about that place as far as your memories of Karakuen Hall. Karakuen Hall, man, it was, uh, you know what, what I remember, I mean, it's your, your typical kind of Japanese arena, you know, small, a uh, little bit old, but always very clean and efficient, you know, and of course, everything's a little bit smaller, and more crowded in Japan. Um, and I just remember being like in, the, you know, like the, the tunnel that goes into the arena. And there was writing on the wall, you know, from like musicians and bands that had played there. And I'm, I'm waiting for my music to come out. I'm trying to get in the zone. And I look at the writing on the wall and I see Tito Ortiz, blah, blah, blah. I think it's from when he fought Vanderlei Silva at UFC. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the same arena where Tito fought. Like, it was just crazy to me you know and uh i had a pretty good fight i lost that fight but it was a good fight um you know uh but still that's that's definitely one of the one of the cooler things so let's kind of talk about pride i mean obviously i'm i know you knew what it was when did was that where you did where you approached them did they approach you how did that happen where you finally got in there pride i got in there uh because i was fighting in korea for an event called spirit mc and I was a champion there, and they are the one who sent me, who made the initial contact with Pride. And I had an agent there. Um, I mean, I don't know if you know what it's like uh, to fight in Japan. You can't directly contact the promotion. You have to go through a Japanese booking person. Not really a manager, because they don't manage you. It's more of a go-between, right? And my go-between in particular was this um 
very colorful Japanese character that would go by Mr. Moroka. And he was shorter, maybe in his 50s. Always dressed very nice, fancy clothes. He had a missing pinky finger. And he was always with his wife or girlfriend who was an older Japanese lady uh, smoking a very long skinny cigarette. It was, uh, there were a character, two characters out of some 80s gangster movie or something. And he was nice. He was nice enough. He got me in there, you know. But yeah, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. So what were some of the memories of fighting in that show particularly? You know, one of the coolest things was uh, everybody remembers the music and pride and those drums. You know, they had a really cool sound system. And at the beginning of uh, every Japanese event, be it Pride, K1 or whatever, they would have the fighter presentation. You know, they line up all the fighters in the ring and kind of, you know, introduce them to the crowd. And when, when, uh, when they would get ready to do that, so they, they would uh, play the music, uh, all the crowd, you know, the crowd was there in the, in the venue and all the fighters were lined up backstage waiting for their names to be called out so they could walk out and get introduced to the crowd for the, the presentation. And just sitting back there, everybody can see each other, right? So you're going to see your next opponent for sure. Everybody's looking over, trying not to look over. Uh, some guys are blatant, staring people down. You know, there's guys from Russia, Japan, America, everywhere, you know, and your, your coaches are not there. Remember, your coaches are like still in your locker room. This is fighters only. There's pipes, wires everywhere because it's backstage, right? It's not front stage. And you're just backstage there by yourself with the music player, looking at everybody very tense. Some people are trying to get in the zone. And I just remember thinking that just taking like a couple seconds and really analyzing that moment, you know, how cool it was, the, just the electricity in the air because the music was so loud again, uh, the pride lady's voice, uh, just announcing people things and in, in, in people's names you know it was really cool i had paulo filio on, on one side just doing push-ups phil baroni shadow boxing on the other side rio chonan just kind of trying to do like little uh takedown moves shadow box it was really cool so some what were some of your memorable fights i mean you fought everybody i mean over your career what were some of your memorable fights in pride in Pride? Well, you know what? My second fight in Pride was, uh, was, was special because uh, I got to Japan a little bit late, uh, like only a, like a day or two before because I lost my passport. So I had to get another one made, you know, uh, really fast. So I got there a little bit late. And then um, I fought this guy named Andrei Semenov, who I fought already in, uh, in his hometown of St. Petersburg, Russia. And I fought him to a draw, but I thought I'd won. But anyways... That's just how it goes. And then I rematched him in, in my second pride fight. And early on in the fight, I broke my hand and I ended up beating him by decision. Uh, and uh, I, it was just a hard fight. It was back and forth. Uh, at one point in the fight, he threw this big right hook and he landed it right on my neck. Boom, just right here on the, it's the only time, first and only time where I've been punched in the side of the neck. And it just kind of shook my whole body, you know. Uh, and I ended up winning by decision, but it was a really hard fight, uh, you know, because because of the, you know, the, the fast pace that we were kind of maintaining and because I broke my hand as well. Another fight, uh, again, in Pride was uh, my last fight for that organization for Pride was the fight against Mizaki. Uh, it was my second fight of the night and I had a torn bicep. So it was it was uh, it was a hard fight. That's the fight where really I had to give everything that I had in me. Uh, at one point in between uh, the first and second round, I really thought that I was close to, uh, to passing out, you know, but my coach Marcus Suarez and, and Liborio really pushed me on to, uh, to keep on fighting. Yeah. So let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Cause you mentioned like Liborio, when did you, cause I know you kind of switched camps, right? You're training at. Well, I, didn't, I didn't switch camps. Marcus swore. I went down to South Florida to train an American top team because uh, I didn't have that many training partners over here, but my coach, Marcus Suarez, who's my BJJ coach and, and kind of mentor, was always in my corner with me and, and always my coach. Yeah. So, and then while I was, uh, when I went down there to, to American Top Team is when I started to uh, to get trained by Liborio as well. Because that was when it was first formed. So maybe talk yeah. about that because you're one of the first people that was there when that first started right. getting put together. Yep. I went down there in uh, 2004. It was, uh, it was really cool at the time. Uh, it was 
a big part of the team was Brazilian fighters, young up and coming Brazilian fighters from Brazil who had a, a good base in martial arts, but were not really uh, experienced in MMA, you know? So when I got down there, it automatically kind of made me one of the most experienced, more experienced guys there, you know? So it was really cool. Uh, also, I think the fact that I spoke a little bit of Portuguese, my coach was Brazilian, you know, it, uh, I, I fit in really good. I got along with everybody right away, you know, and uh, yeah, it was cool, man. At that time, you know, the, the science of MMA training was not as, um, you know, as, uh, as expansive as it is now. We didn't, we didn't know the things that we know now, uh, especially when it, in, in regards to, uh, to hard and light training, basically there was hard training and there was no training there wasn't really anything in between you know and we would spar pretty hard not everybody had uh mma gloves like we have now so we would use these um these gloves that liborio called ninja gloves and uh do you remember the enter the dragon movie where bruce lee is sparring mma and he wears those big ass gloves with the fingers they call them jikundo gloves as well we were wearing those to spar and it would be full out man like hard hard sparring uh, with grappling on the ground and the the MMA sparring sessions were called bloqueo. That's just, I don't know why the, the Brazilians called it that. And twice a week we would have bloqueo and twice a week we would just go to war. And yeah, man, it was, uh, it was hard training. It was good. We had a lot of guys come there from all over the United States, um, guys from all over the world. We had uh, Paul Daly coming in uh yeah guys from japan i remember shannon briggs and zap judah were doing their boxing training camps at the same time while we were there it was really cool so you know when you're training in a place like that where you have so many professionals are there any downsides to that no there's no there's not really any downsides there can be you know there can be things that uh, I mean, of course, you can, if, if, when you have opportunities like that, anybody can kind of squander them and not make the most of it. Uh, but it's up to you to kind of navigate that and, and you know, uh, take full advantage of the situation. You know, um, I'll give you an example. Sometimes uh, for jujitsu specifically for grappling, if, in my opinion, you need to sometimes roll or spar with guys that are smaller or a little bit of a lower level than you just so you can open up your arsenal of submissions and whatever attacks you want to work on that's because when you're always going with guys that are as good or better than you you will not the level the, the technical level is so high and so close you guys just shut each other down so you're it's basically whoever gets the first dominant position or move and then the rest of the round nothing can be done because the person who got the dominant move is just so good and so dominant. He's not going to let go of that, you know? And it's just, it's not really, I mean, it is who's better and who's worse a little bit, but it's mostly who's just lucky enough that day who get the better, to, who, to get the better move first. You know what I mean? Um, and it, it took me a while to realize that when I was, you know, like, for example, I re, at one point I was training with nothing but black belts. And I remembered, I'm like, man, I can't remember the last time I actually got an arm bar on someone or just done a choke or a sweep because it's basically whoever gets on top first and then it just stays there, you know? Um, so I've, that's when I really realized that I needed to train with lower, a little bit, you know, uh, lighter ranks, lower ranks. And that's when I started to open up and kind of smooth out my game a little bit. Yeah. Cause I've always wondered that I've talked to some people like, why do you think there are a lot of fighters probably who've come into American top team or AKA or whatever case may be that didn't yeah. pan out so why do you think that was is it is it some of them need like individual yeah of being that's yes yeah, so that that's a good point you bring up um you know when you're in a big establishment like american top team um you're kind of be kind of going to be left on your own a little bit and if you're a really introverted person who has a lot of talent who just kind of shows up and trains but then after training, you just kind of leave and go home. You might just get lost in the mix, lost in the shuffle. You'll just be another body there. You know, you kind of have to use your social and networking skills and talk to people and, you know, kind of start training with different coaches there so that, you know, because everybody's going to, some coaches are not going to be proper 
for certain fighters just because of the personality the personalities don't match up the styles don't match up you know so it's up to you to find that and to be proactive about it and to you know and to also your, your sparring partners and also to be noticed by the gym management whoever your manager is you know so you kind of have to be a little bit socially smart in structuring your training and planning how you uh just your coaching and things like that you know because like you said there's a lot of people who just don't pan out just because it's either it could be anything they could get injured they could just not get along with the people on the team they could just like i said they're just a little too quiet and just get forgotten and just be used as a sparring partner you know it can be anything so you have to get in there and kind of be smart and always be on the lookout and you can't just put your head down and just train you know that's what you should be doing but also looking around you and trying to, you know, to structure your training in a way that's going to advance your career. So how did you know to make those adjustments? I mean, was that something that took some time for you to figure out when you were there? Or? A little, not really. Um, I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, it's pretty easy for me to make friends wherever I go. Uh, but I, I told you earlier, I speak a little bit of Portuguese, so it was, pretty easy for me to uh, to get along with uh, with the guys there that were from Brazil. Um, the coaches were, uh, you know, there's uh, the, the late Howard Davis Jr. was there as a boxing coach, and uh, I really got along with him, and I really feel like he took my game to the next level. He was, uh, he was a, a huge inspiration for me, um, and his son now is, uh, is there at American Top Team, Daya, and working with, with the guys there. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, and some coaches maybe, you know, the they kind of don't fit with the way you train and maybe you don't train with them anymore, you know, um, but it's trial and error, really. Um, you got to remember when I made it to American top team, I was already fairly experienced, you know, um, I think I had maybe like 15, 20 fights already. So I, I knew how to train myself. Right. I wasn't like a, you know, like a, a young guy just kind of starting trying to figure things out. You know, I had an established, training protocol so it wasn't hard for me to just you know get in there and, and do what I needed to do okay so let's kind of talk about you know you going into the UFC you know yeah. maybe give your impressions of that like first when it first happened me fighting in the UFC or just the experience of getting you know called up to do that I mean you had already fought in pride which is as big as it got but yeah. maybe some of your impressions of of the UFC at that time Sure. Well, so you got to remember when I, um, when I first signed with UFC, I was training in Montreal at the time at TriStar, right? I'd had some visa issues uh, and I couldn't enter the United States at the time. So, and I went back to Vancouver, which is where I am now, but at the time, so this is 2007 or eight, no, 2008, I want to say, um, I couldn't really find a lot of people to train with me here. So I, uh, again, I was proactive about it and I went to Montreal to train at TriStar with George St. Pierre and I decided to move there. And that's around 2009 now, uh, when I signed with UFC and, uh, I mean, you know, it was good. I, I always felt, I never really felt, uh, I always felt a little rushed when I was with UFC. I don't know why. Like I felt like when I was, uh, as soon as I got there, I was like, okay, hurry up and go here, go to your hotel. Okay, hurry up and go there, cut weight. Okay, hurry up. Okay, go to the fight. Okay. And then, you know, it, it just felt like it was a lot more hectic. Whereas in, in Japan, it was, it just seemed like the, you had more time to relax, you know, and to settle in. Uh, I never felt like I really got settled in with all my, all three of my UFC fights. It was weird, you know? So, but I mean, it's, you know, I was also at a little, at a, at a different part of uh of my career you know pride it was uh both three four years earlier i think it was a little bit more fresh and uh in ufc in retrospect i think i was probably starting the the twilight of my career so to speak i want to ask you about training with gsp you know like especially today with khabib like a lot of people kind of splitting between him and gsp as maybe the best fighters the ufc ever had Maybe tell me some about training with GSP, you know, some of your, some of the things that you remember training with him or some of the things you felt he was really good at and things like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you about when I first got to Montreal and uh, like George picked me up and stuff from the airport and I stayed with him uh, for a couple of months uh, and we would train really hard. Same training that I would do, except 
it was we would go from gym to gym right boxing to blah 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 and uh boxing to wrestling to mma uh and we would eat at restaurants every time and it was things like submarine for lunch pizza for dinner <laughs> hamburger for breakfast like it was just fast food and just quick food every time it was pretty funny um, and we were both young at the time so we could get away with it you know and we didn't really know any better i guess um you know that the whole thing of uh, eating perfect and really clean and you know getting catered meals like people do now and really paying attention to nutrition was not really a, a common thing if you did that you were like an outlier you know like oh he's a health freak look at him like he's that fancy you know most fighters just ate you know good but that's it you know uh like not like super you know with all the diets like now you know it's a lot more refined that's for sure now so i, I just remember then it was kind of funny if somebody saw what we ate back then they would uh they'd be they'd be very surprised i think it's it's very different now and you know i always say there's only two i always prided myself on, on training very hard and very disciplined um there's only two people that i ever train with that train as hard or harder than me uh one of those is a fighter by the name of uh, jay z jay z another guy from american top team and uh, the other guy is george st pierre gsp man it was uh we would do two a days and pretty hard training each session uh usually it would be uh you know two a days five days a week and i had to take a break on the one like so for example two days on monday two sessions on tuesday two sessions on wednesday same thing thursday same thing friday saturday only one session so we would start off doing that monday tuesday and on the wednesday there's no way i could do another two a day i had to take wednesday off or one session and george would go to every session very diligently you know he was just very very militant about it you know and i was it's not to say that i wasn't disciplined about it but i just felt like i needed a break earlier than he did or my training would go it would start to go downhill you know so so what made him so special as far as you know his you know his greatness as a fighter what what do you think he attributed that to besides just his discipline i'll tell you one thing george has an amazing ability to read timing and distance uh, and anybody who trains with him will tell you the same thing. Physically, he's a strong guy. He's very strong, you know. Um, fat, speed, he's not that fast. He's, he's explosive, you know, uh, slightly above average. Um, but I felt like I was more explosive than him. That, that's one of the things that I was best at. Stamina, he's got very good stamina. He's got a very high work capacity, right? So he can last a long time. But I think that his, uh, his, his, uh, his best attribute was his eyesight and, uh, and distance and timing management. You know, he could read that split second where you were just about to throw the jab, time it so that he was shooting right under the extension of your jab at exactly the same time. And even sometimes just more like with, uh, with strikes too. Like sometimes it felt when I was sparring with him, I felt like I was completely across the cage from him. And then all of a sudden, boom, he was right in my face. It felt like he had teleported with a one-two right there. Like, you know, it was, uh, it's an uncanny ability to really just move on, like a, make decisions and, and on a split second, you know. And I, I learned a lot from that, just on, on the importance of, uh, it's not, basically I learned that it's not just about power or speed. It's also about reading that exact moment, you know, the timing and the precision. But when do you think he developed, you know, because he kind of altered his style to where he was switching between the takedown, the standup, the takedown, the standup. Right. When do you, th when do, you do you know when he made that kind of adjustment or? What do you mean? I think that's, I mean, you mean as opposed to before when he was more of a grappler? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think, I think he always had that, um, he kind of always had it in him, but then his striking got better and he could mix it up more, I think is what it was, right? And basically, um, like, everybody's got a bit of a rhythm when they fight. So, like, uh, if you're punching, kicking, punching, kicking, you land some shots, boom. Okay, in your mind, you want to do a takedown. So you stop a little bit, you stop, and then you go for the takedown, right? Um, with him, he thinks a lot faster. So he punches, he punches, he kicks. You, sh you punch back, right away he's shooting. 
You know what I mean? It's uh, he makes he changes the style up like on a whim. It's uh, it's it's a lot more. You have to experience it to uh, to really understand it. But it that's just how it feels, you know. He he, because um, sometimes in in like very fast situations, it's uh, not everybody can make that quick of a decision, right? I got good at it later on, just from seeing what what should be done and what had to be done, you know, by by his example, right? But uh, before that, I didn't really see anybody who moved like that, you know. And what about Faras? I mean, you trained with him. He's obviously got a huge reputation. Maybe, yeah. maybe some things that you took away from Faras, or you know, your impressions of training with him and learning from him. Yeah, Faraz was amazing, man. One of the best guys I've worked with for, uh, especially for in the corner. Very, uh, very nice, strategic, and, and calming mind in the. You know, during the fight, uh, Faraz had a good approach uh, to training. You know, um, he, uh, you know, he he really didn't believe in hard training all the time. You know, so it was a bit of a of a contrast with uh, the training that I came from an American top team. You know, he didn't believe in doing too much conditioning all the time, which is again something that I did a lot at. You know, like those fight circuits, like CrossFit circuits, all the time. You know. He believed more in training, like, you know, most of the time, like 90% of the time, it should be like, like drilling and like medium to light sparring, right? And hard sparring, maybe once a week or closer to fight time so you don't get injured, you know? And um, the conditioning or like the really like the, the conditioning and weights and stuff like that should be saved for building attributes, like strength speed explosiveness endurance and that should be off season when you don't have a fight when you're an actual fight camp your training time should be focused on building skills right like boxing kickboxing technique drilling you know jujitsu whatever it is you need you know and it was a little different because i, I came from the school of train everything all the time hard and do conditioning just more of everything is better <laughs> it was uh it was a little bit more bro sciencey i guess so to speak so i want to ask you your impressions of some things you're seeing now i mean you're a big technician and you know maybe i ask you about maybe jujitsu and fighting you know jujitsu's changed a lot especially like the no gi you're seeing a lot more leg locking and stuff yeah even though it's been around forever why do you think guys are having such a difficult time dealing with it now? Well, it's uh, leg attacks are, are, uh, are hard to, uh, to deal with to begin with. Right. I mean, you got to remember if somebody is way down on your legs, they're kind of away from you. So, I mean, just, just by that alone, it, it's hard, you know, um, they're also not as fun to train. Well, some people love them. That's all they do, but it, it can be a little hard to train, you know, because, uh, people are just, you know, just a little bit more scared of it or they, they panic a lot. So rather than work the defense or try to get out of it, they'll tap right away. Oh, okay, fine. You know, um, which is not really the right thing to do. Although I understand why, why it happens. You know, there are people who go a little too hard on the leg locks. So they kind of take the fun out of training and, you know, people, it's no fun you know, trying to defend the leg lock and then you get your ankle popped or your knee torn and then you can't train for a long time. Right. So I, I get it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you got to train leg locks, you know, you gotta, even if you don't use it, like I tell my students, even if you don't like this move and you'll never use it, you need to practice it because knowing your enemy is beating your enemy, right? You have to understand how to deal with it if it's done on you. Um, and yeah, I think now there, there's a big fear of leg locks less, of course, because now with, you know, the, the popularity of leg attacks and, you know, from the John Donaher and stuff like that, a lot of people are training that specifically, you know, um, but it's still, there's still a big of, uh, you know, a misunderstanding towards, towards leg attacks. But why do you think they were able to make it so effective like Donaher and his guys? Oh, well, I mean, they, they, they focus. John Donner came up, um, came, uh, came to train with us at, uh, at TriStar. Well, not to train with, to train us, to train George uh, specifically. And I was there and, and stuff like that. So I got to train with him early on. Um, and he really has a very, like, like here's how it is. For jiu-jitsu especially, jiu-jitsu came from Brazil where the best coaches 
were uh, from Brazil and didn't necessarily have a super descriptive way of, uh, of teaching jujitsu moves, right? Especially with the language barrier. So it was more like, take your hand here, put it there to do that move with the hand on the shoulder, you know? Whereas with John Donaher, he would find the way that you teach certain moves and the concepts behind it, you know? Why do you put this hand here to block the leg and to keep pressure on the hip so that you can dominate his position, stop him from moving, you know, and get more leverage? Like, there's ba it was basically the hows and the whys of each move and the science. And it was almost like, I call it like body engineering, you know? There's a lot of, of, uh, of physics behind it. So he basically put a structure to, uh, to the way that you teach jiu-jitsu. It's a lot easier to learn. And that's why his students have benefited from basically just uh, an easier way of learning jiu-jitsu, in my opinion. I think John Donaher and Eddie Bravo basically revolutionized the way that people teach and train jiu-jitsu. Eddie Bravo more, uh, more so with giving names to moves, which are a lot easier to remember, right? Like with his... Uh, his 10th planet system, his rubber guard and all that stuff. Uh, you know, before there was like 10 different moves, 10 different names for every move, you know, somebody called it something here. Somebody called it something else at this gym, you know, with Eddie Bravo, everything was kind of codified and classified in one concise system. And it was a lot easier to remember and learn. Right. John Donaher did the same thing. He put in Japanese names, but he took it a step further and he really, really went into detail with the science of why certain moves work you know why do you know an arm bar why do you keep your legs tight why you know uh kind of the same stuff that i brought up before and i think it, it made a huge difference with those guys like if you hear if you see now guys like gordon ryan teaching in his videos like he talks he describes moves like john donner very concise very technical you know but still easy to uh, to understand and it's that approach i think that really made people better at jiu-jitsu especially leg attacks you know now as far as with fighting in the ufc and stuff are, have you been paying a lot of attention to it still or no oh of course all the time i try to watch every event i didn't watch last night i heard about what happened with rda and uh, felder but uh no no i try to watch man i mean this is all i do man mma boxing fighting whatever everything <laughs> it's all i do so yeah i'm still in touch so, you know, I wanted to ask you about like Khabib because I know he was being compared to St. Pierre and, you know, why is it that these Dagestani wrestlers, well, some of them, him in particular, are able to make the wrestling so much more effective than a lot of the American fighters today are getting the takedown, lose the takedown. Maybe they get another, lose it again. Because RDA did that a lot last night. Yeah. Take down, lose the takedown, do it over again, you know, kind of mix it up. Yeah. But not dominate yeah. the position. No. It's, um, I don't know if that's a tough one because I mean, I want to say that the dog, like guys like Khabib have the Sambo background, but I mean, RDA has a big jujitsu background. I trained at the same gym as RDA in 2009. When I was in UFC, he wasn't in UFC yet. I trained at the same gym as him and I saw him training and he has top notch jujitsu. So it's definitely not because of that. Um, I think just the whole mentality, like I'll tell you one thing in Canada, the fighters from Quebec, any sport, any competitive sport that's organized in Canada, like hockey, whatever, uh, boxing, whatever, everybody knows the fighters, the competitors from Quebec are just tough. Even if they're not that competitive, they're, or sorry, that skill, they're going to be super competitive and super tough, right? And I think it's kind of comparative to the way the Dagestani fighters are. They're, they all have different levels. Some are better than others, but they're all going to be very hard mentally, you know, and very competitive. And I think it's probably, I guess it's probably because of the country they come from. Um, I don't really know what Dagestani is like, but it's probably a little bit harder, a harder life than, than what we're used to over here, uh, North America or Europe, you know. Um, and it's, uh, I think, the, the fact that they're doing wrestling from a very young age, right? Khabib was wrestling bears growing up, apparently. So, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, maybe that's that. But I think it's just a combination of those things, you know, just a hard, hard overall, uh, you know, nationalistic mentality um, and uh, just putting their kids into wrestling from, uh, from a very young age. 
Now, you know, the sport has changed a lot as far as like the mentality in the UFC and the early UFC was, there's probably a lot more respect. There's a couple of fighters, Tank, Tito, like that, that weren't necessarily like that, but it's almost become more the norm now. What are your impressions of what you see in the UFC now compared to when you were fighting? Well, I mean, of course, now, you know, people are getting, the training is way better uh, back then. If you were in the UFC, you know, you were a little bit older, right? You didn't see that many young guys. The first young guys to be in the UFC were Vitor Belfort and Jerry Bolander. That's why I was big fans of them because they were my age, right? I was, I think Bolander was 21 and Vitor was 19. Everybody else was like in their 30s or, you know, a, a martial art master, an old kickboxing champion or something, you know. Uh, now you got guys who've been training since, since they were born pretty much, right? Uh, you got guys coming in with huge karate background, huge wrestling backgrounds. You know, people know how to train way better. All A lot more mistakes have been made, basically, by previous generations of fighters. And the new fighters are learning from that and building on it and inventing new things, you know. I mean, uh, the style the style is almost changing every week. You know, it just you just need someone to do a crazy move in UFC and then next week everybody's doing it in practice, you know, and then people are getting better and better at it, you know. I mean, uh, like, for example, the thing uh, that uh, Khabib does, the Dagestani handcuff, the way he traps the wrist from behind, you know, on the ground, like, everybody's doing that in practice now. My guys, I'm always calling for them to do that. It, and it really is a legit good move. And it's not something that we didn't know before. Like it's an old wrestling trick trap in the wrist, right? It's just, but it's a lot more prevalent now. And just because it's been reinforced through the UFC platform, right? We see it more and more and we see it's, uh, you know, how, how, uh, how effective it is. So we just call it out, right? So it's, just every time that a, that a new move is there, you know, and we also get more UFCs now, right? So we'll get a lot more chance to analyze fights and learn, learn the sport. So just everything in general, you know, the training, the amount of fights we get, the quality of coaches. You have a lot more coaches like myself now who were fighters, who have fought and who love to train, right? Most of the coaches before had never fought. They were just guys who were good at coaching and had a martial art background, right? whether it was wrestling, maybe a bit of boxing, if you were lucky right now, like I love coaching now and I could coach you in anything, wrestling, jujitsu, uh, boxing, Muay Thai, MMA, right. Conditioning, whatever you want, you know, and I have fight experience. So it's just a, a whole new generation of people. But do you think, you know, because they have so many events, a lot of guys are a lot less experienced. Do you think? Well, right now, you're right. They are better tough. fighters, but I think a lot of them are a lot less experienced than some guys you're, that have come in. You're right. You're right. Um, but to be fair, right now, this year specifically because of COVID, there are a lot less events, right? So the UFC is putting on more events and they have to take guys, they have to make a bit of a compromise, right? Because they're going to run out of fighters. Like if they never took on any more fighters for like another year, all their, their current roster would be burnt out because people can't fight that much. So they have no choice but to take guys that are a little bit less experienced, but so they can refresh their, uh, their roster, you know? And uh, it is what it is. Like right now, people don't have a chance to really get experience. There are some regional shows happening, but not that many. You know, like I'm, here in Vancouver, we haven't had any MMA since February right? My guys have been training all year with nothing, right? It's, uh, it's crazy. So, yeah. So tell me a little bit about your gym, the, the gym you're operating now. Um, so my, uh, my training group is called DK MMA, but I train out of a gym called world champion gym in Richmond, Vancouver. And, um, uh, yeah, I have uh, a bunch of guys. We train hard. I train them hard and everything. And, uh, that's it, man. I have, uh, a couple standouts. I have a bunch of middleweights and welterweights uh, that you'll be hearing from very soon, you know, uh, that are doing really well in the regional certain the, the local circuit here and that that, uh, that I want to take to the next level, you know, and I train them hard. Um, you know, there's a bunch of good gyms in the city. Uh, you know, the whole, the whole level of, uh, of Canadian MMA is raising as a whole. 
So it's nice to see. Why did Canada become kind of such a hot spot? You know, because I think it has that kind of reputation, even as a viewerships for MMA, but also as a, maybe as a popularity for people that wanted to get better. Right. Um, I don't know. It's, um, I mean, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll catch flack for saying this, you know, but uh, I think overall the culture in Canada is not too different from the United States. You know, we're side by side. We watch the same TV. We have the same media, you know, it's uh, so, I mean, it's uh, you know, the USA is getting good. Canada is going to be good as well. You know, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> Cause I mean, there were important spots for the sport in the early years, like Southern California, Hawaii yeah. to some extent. Oh, right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, in Canada, it was Montreal. Right. Um, and like I said, I think the mentality is just a little bit tougher in, uh, in Quebec, you know, uh, you see it for other sports as well. But uh, when I got to Montreal, man, it was like, wow, like this is, totally different than Vancouver or other cities in Canada. You know, it's this, first of all, the sport was a little bit more accepted. You know, I think uh, the people in Quebec, uh, you know what Quebec, they speak French, right? Yeah. So um, it's, uh, I think they, uh, they've always felt a little bit, you know, like outsiders. So it makes you a little bit tougher, you know, and the sport of MMA has always had a little bit of a, an outsider complex, maybe not now. Now it's, it's a little bit more accepted, but definitely up to at least like maybe 10, 15 years ago, you know? So in, uh, in Quebec, they're, they're used to, uh, to, you know, to being a little bit on the fringes and it makes you a little bit tougher. And when you do something that does, it's not that accepted. If you're some, like in, if you're in Vancouver, for example, and you're doing something that's like MMA, that's not that accepted, it can hold you back. Because you, even though you love what you're doing, you always have that little doubt in the back of your mind. Oh, am I doing something that's kind of stupid, you know? But if you're already from a place where you're kind of used to having hardship and being on the outside, when you do something that's already deemed maybe not, not you know, not as, um, as, as you know, as accepted like MMA, you're going to go in it fully because you're just, you know, you already have that kind of that tough mentality, right? So... So who are some of the fighters you're paying attention to in the UFC now or that you like to watch or think are good? Um, right now, I really like uh, Giga. Giga Chikatse is really good. Um, who else? Uh, Jack Hermanson. Really like his style. Um, I think, uh, I think J Justin Gaethje uh, needs to get back on track. I really think he was doing good. And uh, yeah, man, the, the, I think the guy right now is uh, that guy Giga for striking anyways. We'll see how he develops, you know. He's, uh, he's going to be good. But maybe like some of the fighters who are more famous, like Adesanya or McGregor, what are your impressions of some of those guys? Oh, yeah, well, I think Adesanya, honestly, at middleweight, I don't know anybody that's going to beat him. I think he's, uh, he's just too big, too strong. Like the fight against Paulo Costa, I – that's what I was calling right, like the whole time, you know. I just knew that Costa did not have the style to beat Adesanya. Uh, to beat the thing is, Adesanya is basically like a, a bigger, better version of Anderson Silva. And what Anderson Silva was was basically an adult fighting children because of his size, right? He was huge, long reach, and he knew how to use it. Everybody was super short. He had really good timing, really good reading of distance, and he could use that to his advantage for striking, you know. Uh, and now people are kind of moving like that. Um, but Adesanya is like that, like like Anderson Silva, but on a way better level, you know, because he had that kickboxing background. And he's got really good, not really good, but good a good understanding of wrestling and, and anti-grappling, right? So he's going to be hard to beat. I don't see too many people giving him a lot of trouble right now. It's going to have to be someone that's either really good on the ground and wrestling or someone that knows that that's the same size as him and, or that knows how to get in on the, on the inside range, you know? And right now there's nobody really at middleweight anyways. I think, uh, didn't he say he was moving up to light heavyweight? Yeah. I'm, I know there was, some, he was going to fight the, 
the champion at yeah, light champion. heavyweight. That's right, the Polish guy, right? So, and you know, like I mean, we all know nobody really expected him, Jan Blackowitz, right? Nobody really, ex- and he's good. I like that guy. A lot of people didn't expect him to uh, to win. Uh, I think a lot of people don't respect him and and don't and, and underestimate him. And I'm pretty sure that's why Adesanya is so adamant to move up and wait right away. He thinks it's an easy fight. I don't think it's going to be that easy, you know. Uh, you know, I I don't think a Blackowitz is a John Jones, but he's uh, he's no slouch either. You know, he's uh, he's good, man. He can hit, you know, and he's got that confidence now from that win over um, over what's his name. Who did he just beat the, for the title? Uh, Fill me in. Oh, man. I'm trying to – was it Gustafson? Uh, no. It was uh, – oh, man. Anyways, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reyes. Reyes. Oh, yeah, Dominic Reyes. That's right. 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 Yeah. So he's he's good. He's good, man. He'll, I think I, – I don't know if uh, him and Adesanya – it'll be a good fight. It'll be a good fight for sure. Because finally, Adesanya is fighting somebody that's a little bit more his size, you know. So, it'll be tough, you know. What I'm curious to see is what will happen with Jones at heavyweight, right? Because now it's different. You know, he'll have guys his size. And, you know, power will be – and guys will hit a lot harder. And Jones won't hit as hard at heavyweights, right? Like, everything is diminished, right? Everything's on a more even scale. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. Because again, John Jones had that reach and height factor going in, right? Anytime you have someone that's that much bigger uh, with, with the skills to back it up, you know, it's, they will win. You know, they just have more leverage. Gravity works with you, you know, so that's just how it is. Yeah, I think that's going to be interesting too. Plus Jones, it, look, he was having some tougher fighters that like, at light heavyweight recently he was the he fight was. was tough the silver yeah. fight was tough well but he was still winning them like people what people don't understand is uh every time someone has a tough fight they think oh he didn't look good against so-and-so well i mean it, it's a fight you know the guy's not coming to lay down if he looks too good then people say he's fighting nobody like he did look or i don't want to say he didn't look good he had a hard fight the other guy did really well had his own moments but Jones still came out on top. Some of them were, were questionable, but uh, I think Jones is a great champion. He, uh, you know, he, he has the skills. He's strategically, I think he's good. And he has that mental toughness to, you know, to get hit and come back. You know, it's, uh, those are all the skills that you want in a fighter. You know, you want that mental toughness, you want that athletic ability and you want the, you know, that real technical kind of skill, right? He has all that. The only thing that gets in the way of John Jones is John Jones with, with his, his personal choices outside the cage. But that's, that's a whole other thing, right? Um, but, yeah, no, John Jones cleaned out that division, man. There was, uh, I don't blame him going up in heavyweights. Uh, in fact, I think I, I, I commend him on it. I think it's, um, it, it's a, he's, he's taken the, the harder approach, you know, in my opinion. By, uh, by going to heavyweight, it's, it's not going to be easy for sure. Now, as we're kind of winding down the interview, I was wondering if you could, if there's anything you wanted to leave people that were listening to this interview or things you might be doing. I know you're showing a lot of technique on your Instagram and you kind of show Khabib set up to the triangle, things like that. What are some things that you're doing and maybe people might want to check out? Um, just follow me on social media, on Instagram. Uh, this is Dennis Kang on TikTok, uh, Dennis Kang MMA. Uh, Twitter, same thing, at Dennis Kang. I'm pretty easy to find on social media. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, to spread MMA, you know, make people's lives better through fitness and MMA, whether it's jujitsu, boxing, kickboxing. You know, I really think that mixed martial arts can change people's lives, whether it's through competition or just training as a hobby. You know, I mean, everybody knows the health benefits of, uh, of martial arts. And even if it's a little bit more for the mental aspect, you know, uh, we all know mental health is a, is a big topic nowadays. Uh, martial arts and fitness can definitely help bring mental clarity to, uh, you know, to, to, to people. So if, uh, if anybody's interested in that, just hit me up or, or watch my social media. 
And uh, that's it, man. If you're a fan, just reach out and say, what's up? I try to respond to every single message that I get. And there is a lot, but I really try. And so far, I've, I've hit like a 99% response rate, you know. So let's see if I can keep it up. Well, again, Dennis, I want to say thank you for taking time to do this. And uh, hopefully I can catch up with you again sometime, maybe a post-event or something if you wanted to talk some of the fights. Oh, sure. I would love to, Todd. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. It's an honor. Yeah. All right, man. I appreciate it and take care. It was great talking to you. Thank you, my friend. Keep in touch. Appreciate Bye. It. All right. So if you want to follow Dennis Kang on Instagram, it's uh, this is Dennis Kang. And as always, you can follow me at uh, the underscore Todd underscore Atkins underscore show. And uh, uh, please subscribe to my YouTube and TikTok channels, which are Todd Atkins show. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes. Take care.